Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. The Cauldron by Zeno. Author's note. This is a novel, although the battle and many of the incidents described in the book are true. All the central characters, with the exception of Tim Jordan, are imaginary, and their behaviour reflects only what experience has taught me to expect of men of the same calibre in similar circumstances. I found it quite impossible to conceal behind the character Tim Jordan the identity of Colonel B.A. Boy Wilson, DSO, MC, who commanded the independent company in the Battle of Arnhem. I have referred to some commanding officers by their correct names, among them Major General R.E. Urquhart, CBDSO, of the British 1st Airborne Division, Major General Sosobowski of the Polish Parachute Brigade, under General Urquhart's command during the Arnhem operation, Brigadier, now General, Sir Gerald Lathbury, DSO, MBE, now Governor of Gibraltar, of the 1st Parachute Brigade, Brigadier, now Lieutenant General Shan Hackett, DSO, MC, MBE, of the 4th Parachute Brigade, and Brigadier Pip Hicks, DSO, who commanded the Gliderborne troops of the 1st Air Landing Brigade. A reference is also made to Lieutenant Colonel Johnny Frost, DSO, MC, who commanded the 2nd Parachute Battalion and other elements of the division round the north end of the road bridge at the height of the battle. And another to Major Dickie Lonsdale, DSO, MC, who commanded the Lonsdale Force, which held the final positions from the Nader Rhine up past the Oosterbeek Church. But... If any ex-member of the independent company or the division seeks to discover the identity of Sergeant Murray or Corporal McEwen, he will be disappointed. There were no such characters or their equivalents. There were no headquarters sections in the independent company and therefore no headquarters section sergeants or corporals. This is essentially a story of one platoon in the battle. And although references are made from time to time about the general dispositions of other units in the division, no attempt has been made to describe the battle as a whole. This has already been done by the one man in a position to do so, General Urquhart, in his book Arnhem, has given us the definitive account of his division's battle north of the Nader Rhine. The characters in this book are at times bitterly critical of 2nd Army, 30 Corps, the RAF and everybody else concerned with the operation, and so were those who fought at Arnhem 22 years ago. Whether or not their criticism was justified is not a matter upon which I am prepared to commit myself. Zeno March 1966. Chapter 1. The twelve Stirling bombers stood ugly and unwieldy on the runway, each in its isolation creating the image of a pterodactyl surviving in an age other than its own. The air crews stood in two large groups watching the men of the Independent Parachute Company, Pathfinder Parachute Troops, debus from the TCVs which had brought them to the edge of the runway. The members of the two services had something in common. The airmen were themselves pathfinders. Their present task was to drop the parachute troops accurately on three dropping zones where they would set up the ground-to-air aids which were to ensure the accurate delivery of the first half of the airborne division half an hour later. The company formed up, each man looking grotesque and huge under his excess of arms and equipment. 
they waddled away to draw their parachutes, and the New Zealand navigator, who watched with the remainder of his crew, felt his stomach tighten at the thought of what they would be facing within a few hours. As his aircraft turned for home, its mission over, a little under 200 men split into three groups, none near enough to support or be supported by the others, would be marking out the landing and dropping zones for their division. If they were attacked, they would have to hold the air as secure, 60 miles behind the German lines, less than 200 men, alone during half an hour of feverish activity. They would not have the protection of darkness, but were to land at noon on a summer's day, the farthest fringe of a carpet of airborne troops stretching over 60 miles and three great rivers, from the Maas to the Nader Rhine, from Grava to Arnhem. They had drawn their chutes, and now they stood about, 16 men round each Sterling bomber, 16 human projectiles waiting for the moment when they would float down from the aircraft's belly to land beyond the last river obstacle between the Allied armies and the great German plane stretching out to Berlin. Sergeant Eric Leyland reached down and pulled the two webbing straps up between his legs and clipped them into the box about his middle. He straightened up, feeling the straps tighten against his thighs. He would not be free of their grip again until he stood on the soil of Holland. He called his section together and, forming them up, checked their equipment and the fitting of their parachutes. He did not expect to find anything wrong, but he did the job carefully. For, if there were a fault to be found, the platoon commander would find it when he carried out his own inspection. Leyland could never quite make up his mind whether or not he liked Alan Bridgman, and if he did, exactly how much. It was difficult to know with any certainty how the platoon commander's mind worked. He seemed always to view situations, military situations, in a different light from anyone else. In the field, there was something a little inhuman about him, something completely divorced from the drinking companion of a thousand bars in half a dozen different countries, from the husband and the father of two children. Bridgman watched Leyland check his section, but most of his attention was directed to where Corporal McEwen busied himself with the half-section, which, together with Bridgman and his Batman runner, Bilting, made up the plane's complement. McEwen was new to the company, having joined after the unit's return from Italy. He was a tall man, heavy-boned, with a rough, craggy head, high cheekbones and deep-sunk eyes. He was fond of his beer and ready to fight at the drop of a hat, but he was inclined to overlook detail. The New Zealand navigator approached the lieutenant. They had met at the briefing and shook hands now as they recognised each other. The New Zealander unrolled an aerial photograph of the dropping zone, Would you like to show me where you intend to rendezvous on the ground? Bridgman squinted down at the photograph. It was an exact replica of the one he'd spent so much time studying. There, he said, jabbing with his finger, the southeast corner of that wood. What number are you jumping? I shall be jumping number one. Why, does it matter much? It doesn't matter to me, but I thought that if I knew, I could try to put you down as near your rendezvous as possible. Bridgman smiled a little cynically. There had been occasions when he had missed the dropping zone by miles. He would be thankful if he came down within a thousand yards of the RV. Thank you, he said. The nearer you can get me to the corner of that wood, the happier I shall be. The navigator held out his hand again. Well, the best of luck to you, old son. Sooner you than me, perhaps when it's all over, we'll be able to have a drink together. They shook hands briefly and Bridgman smiled his acknowledgement. The airman rejoined his crew and the lieutenant turned back to his men. After checking equipment, he called the NCOs and signallers together. Apart from the 38 sets, the walkie-talkies, and the bigger inter-unit 42 sets, they carried another and very special piece of radio equipment. It was a Eureka, a portable homing device weighing under 50 pounds. 
It could transmit signals which would be picked up by any of the Allied aircraft tuned into the right frequency within a radius of 50 to 60 miles. The main drops and the future supply drops depended to a great extent on these sets being in the right place and on the correct frequency at the precise time a drop was due. He checked with the NCOs and the signalers as a group and then called each one apart and checked with him separately. With the exception of McEwen, they accepted this double check with a stoical resignation. It was a bore, but they knew it was necessary. McEwen did not say anything, but his eyes and lips sneered at the overcaution and double insurance of the platoon commander. Bridgman saw the sneer, but ignored it. Bilting nudged the officer's arm. Major Jordan on his way over, sir. Alan looked up, then walked towards the CO and his second in command as they approached on the grass verge. He saluted. Number two platoon, ready to implane, sir. Tim Jordan waved his stick in reply. Right, Alan, just call your platoon together, will you? I'd like a word with them before takeoff. Bridgman nodded at Bilting. The Batman broke into a lumbering run towards the remainder of the platoon, waiting by the other two aircraft. The three officers strolled slowly over to where Leyland had been joined by Jim Nash, the platoon sergeant, and the rest of the platoon. Major Jordan waved down the move they made to get to their feet, and they sank back. At this stage, it was all part of a game everyone knew and understood. Still in England, and yet within hours to be behind the enemy lines, they made the show of peacetime soldiering. Jordan was an old soldier. He had fought as a cavalry officer in the First World War, and he was the oldest man parachuting in the division. He was a man's man, but above all, he had the confidence of his company. They were not particularly interested in how brave he was, or how good a tactician he might be, they saw him as a crafty old fox, experienced in the ways of war, one who would not shirk responsibilities, but would always accomplish what was required of him with the minimum cost to his command. Human lives, and the lives of his own men in particular, mattered very much to Jordan. He was cautious, but it was the caution of a skilled and experienced fighter who waits his opportunity to strike. Alan Bridgman kept his place by the CO's side. Old Tim was going to give them a pep talk and Alan always found this embarrassing, and he knew the men did as well. He wondered why Tim did it. He knew perfectly well how his men thought and reacted. Most of them had been with him for a long time. Perhaps to Tim it was just another ritual, like church or muster parade, something which was done simply because it was expected of one, and had always been done before. When it was over, the men got to their feet shuffling and grinning like Boy Scouts. Alan walked a few paces with Jordan and his second in command. When they parted, they did so hurriedly, with only a few brief words and a casual handshake. Sentiment hung in the air like treacle, and the three of them were glad to be free of it. Inside the Stirlings, they cursed the discomfort of the British planes. The parachute brigades would be flown in in American crude Dakotas, each man with his bucket seat and room to move, but the Pathfinder squadron was British, and so it had to be Stirlings or Albemarle's. Of the two, the Stirling was the less uncomfortable. Bridgman stirred on the deck of the plane and moved his head so that he could see the men about him and watch their faces. He had only one fear at this stage in an operation. One man, somewhere in the middle of the stick, might at the last moment lose his nerve and refuse to jump, and by his refusal hamper or prevent the men behind him from getting out. A number of reinforcements had joined the company since its return from Italy in January. Bridgman had got to know them as well as he could during a few months of training and rehearsals, but there were still a few he was uncertain about. Airborne operations did not allow the opportunity of breaking troops in gradually. Only a couple of hours lay between the calm of an English countryside and the whiplash reaction of a surprised enemy, 
an enemy who knew only too well that immediate and violent counterattack with every available resource was the most effective method of dealing with airborne landings. He looked at young Adams. When making out the jumping order for the stick, he had given careful consideration to the exact placing of this 20-year-old newcomer. He'd even considered putting the boy first, with himself immediately behind him, but had realised that this departure from the normal would attract attention to Adams, which might do him more harm than good. Instead, he had placed him number 15 in the jumping order, with Leyland following him as last man. Adams turned his head and his eyes met those of the platoon commander. Bridgman smiled encouragement and gave the boy an exaggerated wink. Adams grinned back weakly and then turned away, afraid Bridgman would see the fear in his eyes. Over his head, Bridgman's and Leyland's glances met and they nodded to each other. Bridgman turned away content. If Adams fainted, he would still leave the aircraft. Leyland's brief nod had been sufficient to convince Bridgman that if necessary, the sergeant would pick Adams up bodily and throw him out through the aperture. Adams leaned back against the fuselage. He closed his eyes and yawned prodigiously, then snapped his jaws together and looked about him from the corners of his eyes to see if the yawn had been noticed. He had just remembered the old soldier saying that a frightened man always yawns. He had yawned, and he was frightened all right. He felt suddenly sick and wanted more than anything in the world to be at home with his family in the small Midland town which had been all he knew until his age group had been called up, and a romantic imagination coupled with an unthinking thirst for glory had made him volunteer for the parachute regiment. What a fool he had been to think he was the equal of these other men, of men like Sergeant Leyland sitting beside him with his hands on his lap and his untroubled eyes fixed to a spot on the fuselage in front of him. Leyland thought that Adams would be all right. He supposed that Bridgman's concern about the individual links in the platoon chain was warranted, but not to the degree that Bridgman carried it. It was almost as if he considered that a momentary act of fear on the part of one of his men would be a personal affront, an unforgivable reflection on the efficiency of the unit he commanded. The sergeant looked at his watch. There was still half an hour to go before the drop, perhaps the last drop he would make in this war. He might be killed or maimed. There had always been that chance, and it was no greater or less now. Certainly, it could be the last airborne operation of the war, the Germans must be very near the end of their tether. This was a new thought that the war might end. It had gone on for so long that it had become part of his life. His old life between Sally and the Board of Trade had a dreamlike quality about it, which made it difficult for him to accept that he would, if he survived, return to it. As proof that that life had ever existed, he forced himself to recall that the Ministry made up the difference between his army pay and his civil service salary. This was all that enabled him to keep up the mortgage payments on the house that had at one time represented the sum of his and Sally's ambition. When he thought about the semi-detached house now, it was with a feeling of restriction, a self-imposed shackle which might tie him forever to a suburbia he was beginning to hate more than he hated the war. He supposed he did hate the war. He was no longer very sure. It was difficult to imagine a life which did not contain Bridgman, Nash, Bob Blake, Frank Gorman and John Murray. There was something closely near to tribal about the entire company, with Tim Jordan as its paternal head that had almost succeeded in ousting his family from the first place in his affections. Was this how homes were broken and marriages split? Was it that another and different kind of love, a deeper and more embracing loyalty, replaced the emotions felt for wife and family? A movement in the front of the aircraft attracted his attention and he looked up. The navigator was signalling back that there were only 20 minutes to go before the drop, the sergeant looked at Adams. 
His eyes were closed and his face was white and wet. His lips were slightly apart and the lower one was trembling. Leyland swallowed quickly. For a second, Adams had looked exactly as his own five-year-old son had looked when he'd been knocked down by a bicycle. Not hurt, but terribly frightened by the suddenness with which the even tenor of his life had been interrupted. When he had climbed into the aircraft, the whole of Adam's life, as he knew it, ceased, exactly as if it had never existed. He would land in a foreign country for the first time, strive to continue living in the foreign antagonistic element of war, surrounded by men he had thought he knew, but who had become somehow different now that they were returning to conditions they had experienced before, but which he knew about only from hearsay. Far out in the almost cloudless blue sky, under the bright September sun, Major Tim Jordan thought about his wife and two young sons, the boys who refused to believe that so old a man was really a parachutist. His unit looked upon his late forties with respectful awe. To his sons, he must appear a Methuselah. His mind jerked back to his larger responsibility, to the 200 men who from now on were the instruments with which he was to carry out the orders of higher command. He was a lucky man in more ways than one. The all-important role his unit played in divisional operations had enabled him to pick and choose his men with care. Any officer or man he considered unsuitable, he was permitted to return to the man's former unit with no explanation as to why he was not retained. He had almost 30 European Jews among the men under his command, and apart from their usefulness as interpreters, the spur of hate made them some of the finest soldiers he had ever served with. His was an independent command, answerable only to General Urquhart, the divisional commander, much as he admired the young brigadiers and colonels of the division, he would have found it irksome to take orders from them. He had complete confidence in his company. His concern was not that his men would fail him in any way, but that in some way, at some crucial moment, he might fail them. He felt suddenly very tired. The newspapers were right. It was a young man's war. As the twelve sterlings approached the Rhine, Tim Jordan closed his eyes and addressed a prayer to the God he knew so many of his men did not believe in. And please, give me the strength not to let them down. Prepare to jump, Bridgman's voice cracked through his sterling, bouncing back off the fuselage and reverberating through the length of the aircraft. The light had come on. There were five minutes to go before the drop. He stood up and working together, he and McEwen unbolted the folding doors which covered the six-foot aperture in the floor of the bomber. They hooked the two leaves outwards against the fuselage. Bridgman crouched in a forward stoop at the edge of the gap, his hands outstretched, bracing his weight against the sides of the aircraft, lest a sudden lurch should throw him out before his time. These five minutes were always the longest part of any flight. A draft board of fields flashed past 500 feet beneath him. A strip of silver divided it, and they were over the Nader Rhine. Fields, a wood. His eyes went to the light and then back to the aperture. It was not his job to watch the light. Bilting's hand tapped his shoulder, and he plunged down into the warm September air. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 